Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you after a brief uh, hiatus. Uh, for those of you that are uh, visiting with us for the first time, my name is Paul. I am one of the elders here, uh, otherwise known as Mr. Christmas. Uh, I, I listened to part of uh, Ryan's message from last week, and uh, that's how he introduced me. And I do get excited about Christmas. How many of you guys were at the uh, Canal Winchester uh, Christmas in the Village this weekend? Great. Did you guys see us in the parade? Yes, yes. Snoopy is over there in the back. Uh, he did a great job, and uh, also Little Woodstock was, was there, and a bunch of others. I played yours truly, Charlie Brown, and uh, I was a little plumper than you see him in the TV show, but I had fun nonetheless. And we also had a great time the last couple of nights uh, offering hot cider and cookies for people at the office. It was great meeting people from the community. So just thoroughly enjoy this time of year, not just because of all the festivities, but because of what its true significance is, and that is the birth of Christ. And so uh, last week, uh, Ryan kicked off our series, Prepare, and so we're in week two today as uh, we continue looking at the Christmas story and exploring its significance for us. And uh, this past week in our life group, uh, I asked the question that I'm going to pose to you this morning, and that is, why is it that the Christmas story never seems to get old? I don't know if you ever thought about it before, but, I mean, we do this every year. We, we read the same stories every year, and sometimes multiple times a year. I mean, there's, there's you know, we watch Christmas movies in July, and it's, there's something about it, and the story never gets old, and I suppose there are lots of reasons for that, but I think one of the reasons is, is that Christmas is a love story and a timeless one at that. And most of us like love stories. Some of us guys, we may not admit it, but, but we like a good love story. And this is a love story, God's love story. It's about his enormous love for us and the great lengths that he went to to save us from our sin. It's a story of hope. It's about light coming into an otherwise very dark world, and it tells us that with God, all things are possible. The Christmas story, though, in many ways is shrouded in mystery. Now, we have the, the, we, we have the benefit of hindsight we have 2,000 years and more that we can look back, but prior to Christ's arrival, it was really a mystery. It involved prophets and angels, shepherds and kings. It involved uh, wise men and everyday people just like you and me. And, oh yeah, there's a baby in the center of it all. And who doesn't love babies? And so this, the story appeals to us, but, but it, was a, it was a mystery. And, and maybe one of the reasons why we like it so much is because we're actually a part of the story. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but we're a part of the Christmas story. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more for us in a, in a minute. But as we prepare our hearts uh, for, for the arrival of Jesus, we're going to rediscover a wonderful truth this morning that if we, 
if we fully grasp it, it will, it will direct the course of our lives. It can't help but direct the course of our lives. So before we get to the scripture, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the reminder that you are a God of love. A God who did not sit back in heaven and just wait for us to ruin our lives, but Lord, that you entered into our world. And Lord, you joined the mess in order to, to extradite us from it, in order to pull us from, from the mire that we might be in fellowship with you. So Lord, this morning we pray that you would just open up our ears and our minds, that we might hear and understand things from your word that are, are too wonderful for us. Holy Spirit, give us illumination. Illuminate our hearts and our minds that we might rejoice this morning over what you have done for us. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is not just the celebration of the birth of Christ, but it is a summons to be on mission with God. Most of the time we don't think about it that way, but I hope that after we're done this morning, you will clearly see that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read uh, verses 26 through 38, and I just discovered that my background images on the next slide aren't, they're a little bit too light, so I'm going to fix that for next week, but uh, I love the snowy scene that we have there, but we're going to uh, read and understand that there was probably no snow when this all happened. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
And the angel departed from her. In this scene, we catch a glimpse of the mystery and the mission and the motivation of Advent. Advent coming from the Latin word adventus, meaning coming. So we're talking about Christ's first coming here. And what I want us to do first is take a look at this thing called mystery. Because in this passage, and I hope you have your Bibles with you because I'm going to be looking at other verses and you may want to look back at Luke chapter 1 as we go along. But, but the word incarnation literally means in the flesh. In the flesh. Now the Old Testament is filled with allusions to the incarnation. But it was a mystery. It was shrouded in mystery. This miraculous event could not really be understood. For instance, if we look at what the prophet Isaiah said 600 years, 700 years before the time of Christ, he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And just imagine what you would have done with that hundreds of years before the, the time of Christ. And then just a couple of chapters later, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But Isaiah isn't the only prophet who spoke of this. The prophet Micah records the words of the Lord when he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, the incarnation is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other religions. Every other religion in the world has man working his way to God, pulling himself up by his bootstraps, doing good works, being religious, trying to earn favor with God. So it portrays man working his way to God. But in Christianity... It turns that theology upside down because in Christianity we have God coming to us. That's what Advent's about. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about God coming to us in Jesus Christ. Now in the past, God used many different mechanisms to communicate with us and to speak with us. He sent prophets and judges and angels. He consecrated priests. He anointed kings, but nobody had a clue. Nobody could have anticipated what was going to happen. That God himself, not an angel, not a prophet, not a representative, but God himself would come to earth and, get this, without setting aside his deity, 
Without setting aside everything that makes God God, he, he retained all of that. Without setting that aside, he took on a completely new nature in addition to his deity. He took on a human nature. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a sense, but, but literally God became one of us. And I rarely quote from the, the Message Bible, but I love how it paraphrases John 1.14. It says this, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. That is, in a sense, what God did. He moved into our neighborhood. I like what Martin Luther said about the Incarnation. He says, The mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. We can't fathom it. We can't comprehend. How can this be? People have tried for centuries to try to wrap their minds around the wonder of the incarnation. Soren Kierkegaard, who's a, a Danish philosopher and theologian, um, attempted to do so by telling a story that's been retold a number of times. Um, I'll give it a shot here. But he tells the story. He says, once upon a time, there was a very rich king who longed for a wife with whom he could share his life. And one day, he saw a beautiful peasant woman and his heart was immediately captivated by her. And he wanted her as his wife. But there was a problem. She was a peasant. He was a king. How could he possibly win her love? So he thought through scenarios of what he could do. And I suppose one of them would have been that he could have issued a royal decree saying, you will be my wife. Some of you guys are thinking, that sounds pretty good. I like that. But, but there's a problem with that, right? You know, how, if he did that, how would he know if he truly won her affections? After all, she would have been commanded to do this thing, and so it might have been against her will. So that won't work. He could also appear to her in his regalia. You know, he could come in his kingly vestments. He could come wearing gold. He could, you know, have the chariot drop him off. He can really try to woo her and impress her by his prestige and his great riches and everything. But again, the same problem exists. How would he know that he truly had her heart? She may only decide to be his wife because of the power and the prestige and all of his wealth. Finally, he came up with a perfect solution he would come to her as a peasant. And so he decided to leave the comforts and the riches of his palace, and he put on the clothing of peasants, and he came to live in that neighborhood. And he worked among them, and he played, and he talked, and he laughed. He even danced at their festivals until one day, he won the heart of the one who had captivated his. That is the incarnation. That is what God has done for us. 
King Jesus left the palace of heaven and came to this sin-infested world and lived among us. He worked among us. He talked. He laughed. He cried. He even danced with us. And when Christ took on flesh, he also took on all of its frailties and all of its weaknesses. He experienced hunger, thirst, fatigue, loneliness, and even pain. And the thing is, he did it all to make us his bride. That's what the incarnation is all about. Now, the doctrine would be blasphemous if it wasn't true, but it is. It's one of the most wonderful teachings within the Christian church. Our God came and lived among us. But, but here's a caveat. Just because God has come near to you and to me, that is not necessarily a comforting thought. Not when you really think about it. Consider the words of the prophet Malachi, who said, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppressed hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord. The psalmist writes, For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. You see, if you have an unrepentant heart, the thought of God drawing near is a terrifying prospect. Because God is holy and righteous, and he will by no means excuse the guilty. With that being said, we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we prepared to step into eternity? If today on the way home from this service, you were to have a heart attack or be in an accident, what would it be like for you to stand before God? What would the nearness of God be for you? See, this is the beauty of Advent is we have time. We have time to reflect and examine our hearts before that day comes. With his first Advent, God did not come to us in judgment. But the scripture says that he will return one day to judge the living and the dead. So whether you're here when he comes back or whether you're in the grave, there will be a judgment. 
And the scripture says that only those who have turned from their sin and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Master will be saved. The Bible talks about it, about being born again, or being born from above, or being born anew. It's coming to the realization that we are sinners separated from God. And apart from God's grace, we are all undone. God had to take the initiative. That's what the incarnation is all about. So are you ready for his return? God wants us to be prepared. I don't know when he's coming back. People have thought he's been coming back for thousands of years, hundreds of years. But the reality is it could be tonight. We might not ever get a chance to enjoy our party. It could be tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years, 100 years. I don't know. But I know that he's coming back. And we will all stand before him sooner or later, most of us probably sooner. So the mystery of Christ's coming is revealed in his first advent, but so too is the mission of God. Let's talk about that for just a moment. The mission. In Luke chapter 1, we learn not only how Christ came, but why. You see, God is on a mission, and the mission is redemption. Redemption of a fallen race. God stepped into our world to bear our sins, to die on a cross, and bring us back into fellowship with him. The incarnation is what makes redemption possible. Now let me see if I can explain this. The eternal Son of God did not just inhabit a body. Okay? He was one person with two distinct natures. The, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, before he was in the flesh, Jesus, had a divine nature, and he took on an additional nature, a human nature. Now, this is known as the hypostatic union, okay? I don't expect you to, you know, be impressed with that, but because the word hypostatic um, literally means essence or being real or substance or nature of. So when we talk about the hypostatic union, we're talking about what made Jesus Jesus. What was his real substance, his real essence? And the scripture says it was both divine and human. It was a mysterious joining together of two natures that were inseparable but yet distinct from each other. So that's where the saying comes from that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was one person. Now, when you think about that, that truth alone should make you explode in worship. Because think about what that's saying, what that's telling us about the one whom we worship. There has never been anyone like him, nor will there ever be anyone like him, a man with two natures, divine and human. 
together. No other human being would ever possess these. So now, besides the fact that it, it should cause us to erupt in worship, why else is this doctrine so important? Well, you already got a sneak peek at this. Because Jesus was fully human, we know that he understands fully our weaknesses and our temptations. Those of you who were with us during our Hebrew study remember this verse in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And because Jesus was born of a virgin... His humanity was free from the sinful nature that human beings inherited from Adam. He was as God intended man to be. A perfect reflection of God himself. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And because Jesus was fully God, his sacrifice has infinite value. As a perfect man, he could die a perfect death. He would be the perfect sacrifice. He could suffer and die. As God, his sacrifice would have infinite value. It would be more than sufficient to cover the sins of the world. That's why John the Baptist said in, in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He understood that Jesus was the sacrificial Lamb and that through His shed blood, God could remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. The writer of Hebrews says again in chapter 9, but now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the incarnation is absolutely indispensable to Christ's redemptive work on the cross. C.S. Lewis in his um, book, Mere Christianity, explains it this way. He says this, Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was a man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. But we cannot share God's dying unless God dies. And he cannot die except by being a man. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. Now here's the best part of the whole story. Because 
Jesus was God. Jesus had the authority and the power to take his life back up again and deliver us from our sin. See, we don't have redemption if Jesus stays in the grave. And Jesus stays in the grave if he's not God. We needed a Savior who had both that human nature and that divine nature. But we have to ask ourselves another important question. What's the motivation for all of this? What motivated God to take the action that he took? Well, I think it ought to be clear. It's love. It's love. John makes it painfully clear in one of the most famous verses uh, in the Bible. And that is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see it? It was God's love that motivated, that prompted him to send Christ. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, in this is love, and this is one of the verses that our D group just recently memorized, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You want to know what love is? That's it. The incarnation is the proclamation of God's ceaseless, abounding, never-ending, immense love for us. It is more than mere sentiment or feelings. It is action. It is God taking the initiative to do something on our behalf for our good. God's love is active, overflowing, and undeserved. The Son of God left heaven, came to earth to be born of a woman so that he could bear the sins of the world and save us so that we might be brought into right relationship with him. Folks, hear me. He did not have to do that. He could have let, uh, he would have been perfectly righteous to let us all go the direction that we were going. And the scripture makes it clear. There is not one person who seeks after God. We've all turned aside. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So instead of us having to bear the wrath of God, Christ bore God's wrath in our place. He took our punishment at the cross. This is how we define love. Now the incarnation is a wonderful doctrine and it should, it should prompt us to marvel and worship in ways that maybe we haven't even done yet. To just think about the greatness and the majesty and the grandeur of Christ. I said earlier that the Christmas story never seems to get old. And that there are a lot of reasons why that is the case. 
And I said that maybe part of it is, is because we're a part of the story. But I didn't mean just that we were the recipients of God's grace and God's love, that, that he sent Jesus for us to be born in the manger and, and then 33 years later to give his life at the cross, although that is true. We're a part of the story in that sense. But I think it's even greater than that. I think it is because you and I are called to continue to emulate the incarnation. That we are to be injected into the world. That, that just as God sent the Son, the Son has sent us into the world. In fact, John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are sent into the world as Christ's ambassadors. We, we go as salt and light. We go proclaiming the gospel. But, but you know, the operative word there is the word go. You see, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me. How did the Father send Jesus? Well, clearly one of the most obvious things, he sent him from here to here. Jesus had to go. He had to come. He had to leave the comforts of heaven, the joys of heaven, the fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And he, and he came to us, people who frankly didn't care about him anyway. And God is calling us to do the same thing. And I don't think we have to, to think very long or hard about it to realize that there's a lot of people outside of the, the walls of this building who probably don't even know we exist. And God is calling us to go to them. We are commanded to go and preach the gospel. We are commanded to make disciples of all the nations. We are commanded to love one another even as God has loved us in Christ. We follow the example of Christ's incarnation every time we go into a broken, sin-filled world to act as Christ's ambassadors and witnesses. Advent is about the mystery of God among us. It is about the mission of God in the world. And it reminds us that our motivation should be the same as God's. Love. Love first and foremost for Him. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But it's also love for others. Or as our mission statement says, love God, love people, make disciples. So when you think about that, where might you move into the neighborhood this Christmas? I don't suspect off the top of your head you have an answer to that, but I'd like you to think about it. Who are you willing to live among so that others might be reconciled to God? And not just this Christmas, all throughout the year. For some of you, it might simply be a family member 
that you have a hard time getting along with. It might be a neighbor or a co-worker that irks you to no end. Maybe it's the people you pass by every day without even thinking about it. Maybe it's somebody who shut in, the elderly or the homeless. It is my prayer that as we prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ and his second coming, that we will be enamored and captured by the mystery of the incarnation, that we will decide to be on mission with God in the world and that our motivation would be love. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you uh, for sending Jesus, for being our Savior, our one-of-a-kind, unique Savior, fully God, fully man. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we recognize that you did not have to come to this earth to save us, but you did. And you've called us to be on mission with you. Lord, would you give us opportunities to be salt and light in the world? Would you give us boldness and courage to speak the truth in love, to share the gospel, especially this time of year? Lord, for some of us, it just might be the, the courage and the boldness to invite somebody to a worship service. But Lord, may it not be said of us, we who have been the recipients of your great love and grace, that we remain silent. Lord, use us for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.